This is CISO to CISO, a live podcast focusing on information security, leadership, innovation, and more. Brought to you by Altitude Networks, data security for the cloud. Welcome, everyone. This is another edition of CISO to CISO. I'm your host, Michael Coates, CEO and co-founder of Altitude Networks and formerly CISO, as I always say. So I have some reason that I'm here as well. Um, joining us today is Justin Berman. He is CISO of 30 Madison uh, and longtime security extraordinaire, as I will say. Um, <laughs> uh, we've actually worked together for a number of years as well, but super excited to have you today, Justin. Thanks so much. I appreciate that, Michael. I can't, I can't help. I don't know if the term extraordinaire has ever been applied to me and me not roll my eyes about it, but I appreciate the compliment coming from you. <clears throat> well, awesome, awesome, awesome. So for everyone that's listening or watching, thank you. Um, if you're watching, well, you know there's a video. And if you're listening, thanks for listening, but there's also a video, so check that out too. Uh, in just a little bit, we're going to talk about where we are in this uh, wild world as you look behind us. But to kick things off first, um, Justin, why don't you tell people, like, how did you end up as a CISO and how did you end up at 30 Madison? What was your journey uh, through this crazy industry of cybersecurity? Oh my gosh, I uh, will say I feel lucky. I started my career as a software engineer before I was into security. Um, and that gives me like an engineering bent background uh, and means that I, I think I view the world through that um, lens a little bit even, which gives me a lot of, I think, empathy towards, especially working at a lot of product companies and tech companies. Um, but I went software engineer and then I was a security consultant, so, which is where I met you at Aspect. Um, and then after that, I joined, I went in-house because I got fed up with going to the same clients and having them tell us that the, uh, we were doing great work and then them not fix anything. So I was like, there has to be something more than this. Uh, and then I went in-house at a hedge fund called Bridgewater for a bit and rebuilt their security architecture team. And then I transitioned to VP of SEC from there um, at a couple startups, first at Flatiron Health in New York City before they got sold to Roche, then to Zenefits. Um, then I had the auspicious luck of joining Dropbox to help them um, make the nice transitions in their security journey, as well as building out their anti-abuse teams, so like the technology teams that prevent uh, people from using Dropbox in abusive ways in the world, such as like hosting malware. Um, and then I was going to take a year off after uh, a run at Dropbox and decide and got pulled back out of it by this little company that I work at now, um, which is on this insane growth curve called 30 Madison Health. And 30 Madison Health's mission is about um, ensuring that the world has the right kind of solutions for their chronic care needs. So we don't um, compete with people like Forward right now, Forward Health right now, or um, others in the primary care space. But our belief is like there is a unique opportunity to make sure that people who have lifelong health conditions have the best management that they possibly could. I think um, our co-founders like saying that we want the quality of going to a specialist in the field and the user experience of the best e-commerce platforms. The thing that um, I like about the, the cybersecurity journey, so to speak, is that it's different for everyone. 
Um, you know, there are some parallels that you had. Uh, I mean, we even worked together. Um, but you no, know, consulting is often very common in someone that uh, ends up as a CISO. I find that at least it gives you a level of uh, compassion and understanding for the other side, um, which is nice. And it's, I mean, you're so fortunate to have had a, a development background too, because um, you know exactly what they're they're feeling, <laughs> what they're dealing with when you're trying to say, we're going to do this securely, do it this way. Like, well, actually, you know, you got to do this. And that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's been, um, I mean, I think it's been, a, I feel it's been a real asset. There's, there's times where I think I um, sort of wish I understood what it felt like to come from the kind of like compliance and risk side or the system administration side, because those have not been my background. And so there's always that curiosity on my part about if you have that foundation, how does that change how you see the world? But I will say um, I, I feel really fortunate given that I have chosen to, in particular, apply my skills in technology heavy organizations to have that background of doing technology delivery and development before I got into the security questions that we so often deal with. Also, I'm, in some ways, I'm just lucky because like, I think you and I were in product security far before that thing was as big as it is now. Uh, like network security and firewalls and AV and all that stuff has been around for a long time, but I, I didn't even understand it when I was doing it, but we're really early wave product security people, which means that the depth of experience we bring from that perspective is uniquely valuable to companies that really are focused on the products that they sell and the security of those products. Um, and so it just gives me a leg up in many ways on solving those kinds of problems. And I really like that. I, I agree with you on the kind of that curiosity of other domains and what it means to be deep in them. Um, and I, I don't know who's saying it is, but there's that like T-shaped person, like um, you're deep in, in one area and then a working knowledge of the others. And at least for me, I found you know that's helpful as a CISO because you can lean on that expertise uh, and still hire people smarter than you for sure. But then you definitely bolster your leadership team with experts in those other domains. And I guess the reason I mentioned it is there's so many people that look at the role of CISO and say, well, I'm not an expert in blah, therefore I couldn't do it. And here we are, we're, like, we are just admitting we're not experts in tons of things. Um, and no matter what expertise you do have, there's always other ones you have to augment for with a, a good leadership team. I 100% uh, resonate with that. I mean, in in particular here at 30 Madison, even though my title is CISO, right now the more appropriate title might be VP of uh, Security, Privacy, Infrastructure, and IT. I oversee and build out a lot of different teams um, in a lot of different spaces within 30 Madison. And so, um, excuse me. And so I'd say like even more than just the, there are security domains that people are better at than me. I am constantly interacting with um, technical leaders on my teams who know vastly more than I ever will about their domains uh, specializations. Um, it is, I think part of the challenge that the CISOs face in general because they generally are younger uh, compared to the peers at the exec table. They are generally, let, like there has been less executive coaching investment in those people to understand how you move out of a world in which you need to know, in which a world in which you need to um, get other people who know deeply to the right answer. 
Um, and I think that also we don't do ourselves or rather uh, CISOs are done no favors by the expectations being unclear of the leaders above them. Meaning like um, I've met CTOs that think I'm a security engineer and I have met CTOs that think I'm an executive peer and the whole range in between. And uh, because we as CISOs haven't clarified our real role within the world, I think that um, the leaders above us don't know what to expect. And as a result, hold us accountable to a range of expectations that are far in excess of what is actually reasonable. Like I've definitely met people that are like, you mean, what do you mean you're a CISO and you can't like um, analyze this like very specific log type. And I'm like, uh, I mean, I'm, I can't and I will happily hire someone that can if that's critical, but yeah. Uh, I, I agree completely. Um, I, I've also seen some of the miscalculations with the, the CISO or the cybersecurity organization of being, well, what do you mean that person could do something that was a security risk? Didn't, can't you stop all those things? And it, <laughs> you know, it makes me think about like, well, we have a CFO, but that doesn't mean they can stop everybody from making poor financial decisions or poor expenditures on their credit cards of the company. Um, it, it Kind of that miscommunication that like, this is setting a strategic direction that we can choose to get on board with and, and win, but it's not like we're going around being the uh, the authoritarian police preventing all mistakes uh, entirely. Yeah, I think there's this, um, first, I think part of the problem here is I don't think we have yet been able to, and I think this is as much a security um, industry issue as it is a broader corporate issue. A lot of people, like in finance, the measurement of the impact of a of financial controls is usually quite easy to calculate. Mm -hmm. We introduce this control. It has these costs on like longer longer project timelines. It has these benefits from a like risk reduction. You, you know, you this 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 much uh, less money is going to get spent inappropriately within the organization, and the organization is able to reason about that very effectively. Because of both the fact that adversaries are um, complex to analyze, many companies never get access to the information that they would need to actually be able to do a holistic assessment of their adversaries and the um, TTPs those adversaries have. And on top of that, impacts vary widely from even a single adversary with a single set of objectives. Um, it is really challenging to build a model, like a financial model for security that is easy for other leaders to reason about. Uh, so I think that part of what you're saying that really strikes me is people, when they, when they can't see a model of how a dollar of investment into a risk reduction function turns into, you know, $100 or whatever the multiplier is of protected um, outcomes, then they assume more binary metrics, which is what we can't actually deal with because the binary metric is like either we're, uh, if we have a security team, then we're not breached. Um, and that binary nature is the, the, the challenge of the thing. Um, the reason I say it's both a corporate issue and a security issue is because like, I don't think we've even internally in the industry agreed what we should actually be measuring. And even when we talk about what we should be measuring uh, and agree on, like, I think a lot of people would say like, oh, you're trying to manage your risk down to a particular level. 
uh, how do you measure that? How do you measure that authentically? How do you actually drive data into that conversation reliably? Um, and I think that's the like a huge challenge, which really, which frankly makes it hard for the CISO to be held accountable um, by their organizations and by like and as a result, their organizations have outsized expectations because uh, they're throwing money at a problem and they don't really understand what they're supposed to get. Yeah, so I, I may, maybe that will make some security people mad to hear, but I have a lot of empathy for why it's hard to manage a CISO, a security team, et cetera, from the, from the like business perspective, because it's like the CISO is coming to you and saying, we have to do all these things. Uh, and then when you say like, oh, okay, so like, what's the return on the investment there? And they go like, well, it's really hard to calculate. So you just have to trust me. Um, and to be clear, I think many, there's many people I can think of um, who really are trying to do a lot of work to improve that world and like get to better measurement outcomes, but it's not easy. Um, and so I think there's lots of places where trust and this is the, like, the default is, is um, trust me more than the default is here's the data about what we're going to do, not do, how much risk um, we have, don't have, et cetera. Yeah, I think you, I mean, I think you hit on such important points and especially for people that are listening. Um, I mean, no doubt we all have our areas in these roles or like, I wish we could get better at this or I aspire to this role, but this is really a big one, which is how do you present what you're doing to those above you, to the leadership that is more than, like you said, more than just trust me or because even worse, because I said that, which you can't even do, but the trust me factor versus like, let's make this a little bit more concrete as best we can, which is, is very challenging in our nebulous field. I mean, measuring risk avoidance in all places is a, is a hard thing to do. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting if you look at the physical security field as the like a very related industry there, it's been a field and been so developed for such a long time and the solution spaces are relatively well understood. And in fact, what it's, I would say are largely commoditized. Um, and in fact, the insurance on that side has driven a level of rigor in risk analysis that allows people to, based on you know millions of points of information say, okay, the likelihood of a, um, of a store being broken into in a in this neighborhood in like under these current economic conditions and all these other things is is like measure or at least predictable reasonably um and i think in many ways i think that um that level of rigor simply like the data doesn't exist yet um, we all hide it from each other. We're all terrified of anyone learning about all of our breaches. And so we don't make them public until they have to be. And, um, you know, individually, we might share data with each other. But globally, I think there's not this kind of like idea of let's really measure. Um, second, like adversaries are working to keep their methods as secret as possible. So you have a whole different layer of that problem on that side. Um, but yeah, I think until we get to the point where we can like where insurance can accurately predict risk and offer like a, this is the rate, then it's in many ways just very challenging for um, 
anyone without a huge amount of money to invest into like uh, risk measurement and management for an organization. If you have a lot of money to invest, then I think you can actually get the data, et cetera. But you know, what we don't have is a way for the for people that aren't working at a Fortune 500 company to reliably do that work. Agreed. So, stepping back and looking at, looking around uh, on our video, um, everyone that's watching sees that we are somewhere beautiful in the world. Uh, as I tell all of the guests, I will put them on the Altitude Network's private jet and virtually fly them somewhere. Um, so I hope you're enjoying your your free drinks, your virtual free drinks. Um, but Justin, where are we and why did you choose this location today? Sure. Uh, so we're on the South Island of New Zealand. Um, when I'm not working, I really, really love the outdoors. I spend lots of time backpacking and hiking. One of the longest backpacking trips I ever did was in New Zealand uh, and in particular on the South Island. It is an incredibly beautiful place that uh, is just, you know, incredible waterfall after waterfall, gorgeous mountains. Behind me is Mount, I think that's Mount Cook, which is the largest mountain in the Southern Alps, which is the big range that runs through New Zealand. Um, the people are incredibly friendly there. The outdoor culture is amazing. Like they, they support it heavily because that's their tourist industry on South Island in particular. Um, and really it's just a place that I found a lot of peace. I've been there multiple times. I feel very fortunate to be able to say that. It's pretty far away from most of us. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's just this, uh, it's, it's an incredible outdoor focused place that is in many ways the opposite of my day-to-day -day life. It is so far distant, both physically as well as digitally from everything. I don't spend time on my phone when I go there. I spend time in nature. Um, so yeah, I think that that's the, the that's where we are. That's why we're there for me, at least. Awesome. Um, I always, I always love the different places we go and kind of the stories behind it. Uh, it certainly resonates to me, like that disconnecting and getting away from things. Uh, How many people have look, come on here and put Vegas and talked about Black Hat? I'm hoping no one, but I bet someone. No, <laughs> no nobody, nobody has picked that. We have. Um, man, all sorts of interesting places, but nobody has uh, picked Vegas. Nope. Got it. <laughs> the one thing that I had written down that I really wanted to touch on, um, in a few places, you have basically started the security program. You've sort of taken it from well, essentially zero to one. What is that like walking in when there's nothing? How do you possibly make sense of there's every potential security problem under the sun? Where do I even start? How do I do this in a non-chaotic way? But you must have learned a thing or two doing that more than once. Sure. Yeah, and, and I feel very, um, I'm doing it again right now. Uh, <laughs> you know, at, at Flatiron, I did this. I was the first security hire they ever made. I was employee 60 there. Um, at Zenefits, I had to reboot their security. Pro there was a program, but I had to largely reboot it. And, and here at 30 Madison, I am the first security hire they've ever made as well. Um, I think the work starts uh, before you walk in the door with understanding deeply what the company actually thinks they're trying to hire. Um, before I accept a role, I, I, thought, I don't think I understood this when I did it at Flatiron, but when I came to 30 Madison, I understood this intimately. And so I, that's why I say I'm trying to help someone that's thinking about taking a role like this or has taken a role like this. Um, 
the work is to understand what does the company actually think it's buying with security? Does it only care about compliance? Does it actually care about hiring a security team that's based on like that's about like managing the risk? Do they, uh, is the culture focused uh, on secure? Actually, instead of saying focused on security, let's say, does the culture, is security a part of the value system the company operates under or not? Um, do they want it to be or not is another different question. Because if it's not, uh, and they want it to be, that can be the big focus of work for you. Or if they, if it is, and they actually don't care about it that much, then you just like, you can still make the choice to take that role, but understand that you have a whole different set of complications mm -hmm. with your leadership team. But it is really about understanding what do they really want and making an authentic choice about whether that role is the right role for you. Um, I have met too many young security people that want their first CISO title and take jobs at companies that really only want a head of compliance but are calling it a CISO. And they get very frustrated and very burned out, you know, because there's they are standing for a like higher standard of security than check the box security. Um, and that's the work that they want to do and that they find meaningful and they don't, they aren't taking the time to really make the company be honest before they join. It's also bad for the companies that want to operate that way. I don't mean everyone should want a, an amazing security program. Some people have a legitimate business reason to not need one. But if the company hires someone into what they, if they sell a role as a security role and it's really a compliance role, they're likely to get the wrong person in the door to accomplish the mission they want. Mm -hmm. So that's pre-work. Once you're there, recognize that when we talk about security zero to one nowadays, um, at least if we're talking about a product company or a technology organization, chances are when we say zero, it's not really zero. Like we're not, you, you might, but chances are you're not walking into an organization in which like they have all slash zero network rules for everything and like everybody can touch every part of the infrastructure or that there's no authentication on their applications or you know that there's like certain baselines that i think didn't actually used to be as trustworthy built in that are now kind of just like default configuration within the um tools and systems that we rely on or rather that companies rely on uh so it's helpful i think first to take stock of what is actually true and what is actually not. And if you're coming into a company in a zero to one phase, then it's also really helpful to remember something, which is frankly, um, as a, a, um, a friend who I will not name right now said to me at one point, no one cares about your co-op. Their point when saying that was, Everybody thinks that every nation, everybody talks as if every nation state in the world cares about their one little company. And that's just not true. And frankly, if you join an org that legitimately has the concern that a nation state is targeting it, your job is either to figure out, no, it's like to help them realize that's not true or to realize that you have just taken on one of the hardest possible challenges in the world, which is trying to stop that level of adversary, period, let alone from the zero to one perspective. But if we're right, that the, but I would, I would posit that the vast majority of companies don't have to care about everything. And then it becomes an authentic question, like what is likely to go wrong first? 
it's like, okay, it's probably like, there's a bunch of things I think we all know and face all the time. And these things never really go away. It's like hygienic things. It's phishing. It's like basic background internet scanning. If someone can find your, your servers on Shodan and log into them, then like, that's your actual problem. Uh, and that's way different than saying like, oh, I need to be able to uh, behaviorally detect custom malware affecting me. But people get confused and they chase the shiny object and the shiny mm -hmm. object is that all, all that malware detection. If we mm -hmm. think about trying to provide ourselves a framework to operate under instead of just say like uh, arbitrarily saying like, well, what is likely for me specifically, then I think I like I think there's a difference. There's a bunch of frameworks in the world that we can talk about, and they range from the technical standards frameworks, which I would say like the CIS now 18 used to be uh, SANS Critical Controls 20. Now it's 18 of them. Good for SANS for slimming things down a little bit. Um, all the way to the like, I think more sophisticated and abstract NIST cybersecurity framework. Um, we get trapped sometimes in trying to like start at the smart, start at the end state and work our way back. And I would say um, security is a journey. It's an iterative journey. And if you're going to start somewhere and you don't have much, start with the thing that allows you to make concrete, straightforward progress. And to me, that's like the critical controls framework because it's a technical standard. It's not a not an abstract thing. It's not hard to decide if you're meeting an obligate or sorry, meeting a goal within that framework. It's like, you know, it's got really simple like do you have a single place that you can get all your security data like have you implemented antivirus have you like is it present on all machines in your environment do you have an inventory and many times those controls are not um shiny or sexy or like but they make up the foundations that we have to operate from and until we can authentically say that those foundations are reasonably strong, not perfect, but reasonably strong, I think that it is a waste of time to try and do all the super sophisticated things. So when I like the, the most succinct answer I would give is know what program before you join the organization that they're really looking to build. Um, make a conscious choice about whether that's what you actually want to do. Second is like, when you get in, assuming you're trying to do security work and not, not just compliance checkbox work, get a technical standard, a lot, like tell the company why that's the right standard. It's a pretty easy argument when you say like tons of people use this thing. It's a widely adopted thing. And then pick off pieces of it and execute them over and, and like do that until you're at a place where you feel like you have achieved a reasonable amount of maturity. Along the way, you're going to have to hire people. You're going to have to buy some vendors. You're going to have to build some processes. You're going to have to write down some policies. Um, but like that standard gives you this nice benchmark for you to align the company around and say like, this is where we are. This is where I want to be in 12 months. And I'm going to do like, this is the, if the company needs it, this is the roadmap that we're going to use to get there and how I'm ordering the investments of that thing. Um, and then you, and then execute. Like, I think one of my earliest experiences talking to a startup CEO left this massive impression on me because I don't think anyone had ever said this quite this way to me before. He said to me, execution is king. And I agree. There's like, you don't need the perfect plan. You don't need the perfect um, 
tools. You don't need the perfect anything. What you need is to drive forward and make things iteratively better. And I don't care if it isn't a hundred percent done. If it's like the first pass through things is often just going to be like 20% of the effort, 80% of the value, the 80, 20 of things do that. And you've made the world better a bunch. Um, anyway, I, I think yeah. a bunch of different streams of thought there, but like when I think about the zero to one, it's not about like, choose this one specific tool buy this one specific thing. It's really about like build the foundations, do that like and execute day after day after day, whether that's hiring, whether that's like literally implementing a tool, whether that's, you know, rolling a policy out, training people, whatever you feel like lives into the framework that you've chosen that helps you organize your thoughts. Yeah, you know, the thing that you, you mentioned on the, the nation state, the shiny object item, it gives everyone a little bit of you know, consolation, the adversaries, if they are advanced and smart, they're going to take the path of least res resistance anyway. So they're not going to go burn a zero day on you uh, if you can't patch your machines. They're going to take the easiest possible thing. And so no matter where your concerns lie, you have to do those foundational items everywhere anyhow. And I've talked about this a lot before that we might say they're not sexy, but trying to do them at or you know enterprise scale is really hard and if you can figure out how to make that happen from a workflow perspective from a buy-in from your business partners from an incentive that's pretty uh respectable in and of itself so just doing that everywhere is is pretty awesome and its own challenge yeah i actually really agree about the uh -oh. and in fact I would say, it feels unfair that it's still as hard as it is like why uh, the, the problems that exist now, albeit manifested in perhaps cloud systems instead of on-prem. I don't hear you, Justin. I think it might be your headphones then, because I see my, I'll type it to you. What's the last back. thing? <laughs> yeah, nice. We had a uh, we had an audio switch out, everyone. So here we are again. Yeah, we're just talking about the shiny object. Doing foundational security is actually pretty hard uh, yeah. at scale across the enterprise. Yeah, it feels unnecessarily hard. It's still like some of these things feel frustrating to me. I've seen the same problems in orgs, albeit manifested into different pieces of technology for the entire my entire career. I inventorying is hard for what reason? I like I, I don't. That feels like something I could belabor easily, complain about for a long time. It feels insane to me that we haven't figured out how to do some of these things um, so well at this point. But yes, I agree with you completely that it is hard. And in fact, it is. I am always impressed when I talk to a security engineer and their focus is on solving some of these very foundational problems in a way that sticks. Because I think oftentimes people will flash in the pan these problems like, oh, yeah, I did a scan. I did a vuln scan. Like, yeah, I sent a bunch of vulnerabilities over to the other teams to be patched. Um, but actually driving that as a program through time and having an engineer say to me, like, yes, here's how I know I reduced the, the risk the organization faced. This is how, like, here's all these things not the individual line item vulnerabilities necessarily, but here's this progress we made of where we used to say, like, 
ha uh, failed to meet our SLA around criticals by this much. And I built a patching system that made it so we didn't have to anymore. And that saved time for all of the IT staff because otherwise they would have had to do it. That, that like massive impress. I always impressed when I hear those kinds of things. It's just like a dedication to the reality practically of the craft that is way different than the dedication to the shiny objects and the like, oh yeah, like I hunt, I hunt nation states through systems. I'm, I'm sure you do, but can you stop the baseline bullshit that affects us every day? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, another interesting idea that we've talked about before is this combination of like, what is the quote, you know, correct amount of safe, mm -hmm. which I think is also very closely tied to this whole concept of trustworthiness. Um, this is something you've been thinking about and kind of put in perspective as you're looking at what you're building your programs, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that like, simplistically, I think the correct amount of safe is um, first and foremost, the uh, or sorry, is minimally the economically advantageous amount of safe, right? Like, um, here's an example of what I mean by that. If you if you say like there, there's a there, uh, maybe a model I have in my own mind first is there's a the low bar of compliance checkboxes. There's a bar above that low bar that I would call the negligence bar. If you're not doing these things and you care and you say you care about security or you tell your customers you care about security, then you're really being negligent. Um, and then above that is the what I would call economic bar, which is like below uh, um, the economic bar is the amount of money that's worth investing that actually turns a further profit and growth for the organization above. You might still choose to invest more than that for a variety of different reasons, but the economically advantageous bar is measured as like Yes, I can. Like I establish the security controls, the program, the people um, that actually turn out a return for the organization. That could be because we can um, easily meet customer security needs. That could be because we offer security features in our platform that are um, in excess of our competitors. It, it could be because in the market that we are in security is actually a differentiating advantage for us versus our competitors. I think that like um, to look back at my prior role at Dropbox, Dropbox competes with Box, Box sells enterprise and sells security, Dropbox sells more B2C, although they had a big enterprise, have had, I don't know, a big enterprise business and Box beats them using security as part of the messaging. And so when we talk about the correct amount of safe, I think a core way to think about the right amount is, again, there's a negligence bar that you have to hit. And then above that is a bar of like, how safe do we need to be that actually promotes the growth and success of the organization? Um, some companies don't need that much. Some, like if you're starting a fast food chain, you probably need to adhere to PCI for, you know, vendor, but you probably don't have like no one really i don't think that many people walk into a fast food chain going like hmm how do they secure their servers though they're like can i have a burger please <laughs> um and so i think that like and obviously that example is trite on purpose but the the point i would make is like different companies different worlds different like expectations at the customer side um and that to me is is like the 
in many ways, the safe enough bar. By the way, that bar is not a static value. It changes over time. It can change because you go into new markets. It can change because your customers' expectations change. It can change because your company's profile changes. So, you know, safe enough is like, could be one of the things we might think about is like, hey, if we have a large scale breach, our customers are going to churn at a higher rate. And so we want to do a, like, we want to like reduce the likelihood of a breach like that to some some percentage or lower and as our profile goes up our adversaries get more sophisticated and we necessarily have to invest more in order to continue to meet the like hold the level of risk at an appropriate level so this isn't a static value but it is like the the conceptual bar is what i'm going to call this economic bar which is like everything that you invest up to that point returns dollar for dollar better in the company's favor. Everything you invest above that point may not be a sensible investment from a pure dollar on dollar perspective, but could still be a value from a culture perspective, could still be a value because of some other thing that the company holds as important as different from what the company gets as a result. the trustworthy bit is that like inherently when you have customers, they have expectations, both implicit and explicit. Often security expectations are implicit and not explicit from customers in the B2C space and explicit with the customer in B2B space, i.e. we expect you to have a SOC 2, we, ex- we want you to sign this contract addendum, whatever. Um, you know, So the challenge for security people I think to navigate that line is when the expectations are implicit, how do you explain it accurately to your organization that like, yes, no one is going to come to us and demand that we show them our SOC 2 before they buy us, but they expect us to be safe enough. And the churn numbers we will see if there's a breach may actually be the issue. And we don't want to underinvest until we gather that data live as a result of a breach, we'd really rather try and, you know, like prevent that kind of event from happening, or at least mitigate the impacts of those events to the point where it is a much smaller scale issue. Um, And I think when I really think about trustworthiness, the other, the more abstract philosophical bit is like, I think too many security teams think their job is to stop all risks And in reality, Mm -hmm. your job is to build a trustworthy system. This gets back to the safe enough. It's like, you wanna be trustworthy. Trustworthiness is not about perfection. Trustworthiness is about things like transparency. Um, Like, I don't think any of us expect our friends to never hurt us or make mistakes, but we expect them to take responsibility when they do. And we expect them to help us deal with the ramifications when they do. So when I think about true trustworthiness, then on the philosophical side and not just the like what is enough um it is also about adopting a mindset of like we are we are not guaranteeing that there will never be breaches what we are guaranteeing is that we will act in good faith we will prove to you that we will be transparent and honest and we will help you deal with what happens as a result of that breach rather than shirking responsibility hiding from it etc um I think that to me on the, on the trustworthy bit in particular is like, uh, it's just like a mindset shift. It's like making security more honest. Actually, 
that's in my head in particular because I ran into something I've never read before called the, the website called honest.security. If anyone here hasn't read it, it's all about being transparent with your staff about the security measures that you have, like how to do detection, or sorry, how to do endpoint security in particular in a transparent and privacy respecting way. Um, so honesty has really like stuck in my mind right now, but I think the same thing is true about how we deal with our customers, how we deal with the world externally. Um, by the way, I think this pays massive dividends. It's like an upfront cost. There's a whole bunch of people at the company that are gonna feel uncomfortable, but like you can see over longer periods of time, longer horizons, how, Honesty breeds trust, breed, or sorry, let's say transparency breeds trust, breeds empathy for the company. Like if you have a company that owns its mistakes, you may be empathetic when it has a mistake because you're like, they're trying. I know they're trying. They told me what happened. They're doing, they're trying to do the right thing. If you have a company that covers it up and they have a mistake or that they have a reputation for not being that trustworthy, then that makes you even more, then every issue they do report is like, well, what didn't they say if this is what they are saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, a lot of your comments around safe, um, the correct amount of safe, it really made me think about the tenets of risk management. Um, it, it's not about absolute safety or absolute security. Those are unreasonable objectives, but the correct amount for what you need to achieve as a business and what you're um, portraying to those around you. And I think that far too often in security, we get lost thinking about the, the details and don't realize that we're fundamentally doing a field of risk management as it applies to technology and business. Um, and then I love what you were saying about empathy and transparency. Oftentimes when I talk about breach response, one of my things is people will understand if something happens, provided you're not just incredibly egregious in your controls. Right. If you are you know, transparent about it, like say what happened, say what you know today, what you don't know is fine. Say when you're gonna come back and tell them again, the way in which you handle the discussion of the breach is judged almost as important as what happened of the breach itself. Totally, I think there's also a value in talking about the non-breaches more. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. What I mean by this is like for every, I hope this is true for most organizations. It's my experience that this is true for every thing that like is an actual breach. You often have a lot of either close calls or events or investigations or incidents that didn't make the transition to actual impact and didn't actually turn into like a loss of customer information or a site outage or a like, or, or financial theft or whatever else. And like, I think, I don't think you publish about them the same way. I think that's like great tech blog material. I think that's great material for you to talk about. Um, I think it builds confidence in you as an organization in the transparency that you have, because you're talking, you're telling the wins, the stories and like, did you win? Because some of those stories might be like, we won by luck as opposed to we won by skill and, and forethought. Um, but it paints the picture that you are paying attention to the problems and investing it in like the post-mortem value that you get. So that like, yeah, wow. Like uh, if if we get to a place someday where I have to report a breach at 30 Madison, I absolutely, I mean, obviously I hope we don't. So I'm gonna do everything I can to make sure we never do. But like that should come along with our customers and our partners going like, 
Yeah, I mean, Justin's team has been publishing about security efforts for, you know, years and uh, the near misses they've had and all the lessons they've been learning from and they've been trying to educate the market about like the lessons those people can learn out of that and et cetera. That's like a whole different relationship um, that you can have with the world. And, and like, so the trust building is not just, are you honest when you do have a breach? That's critical, but it's actually are you able to be authentic and honest and transparent all the time? And then the breach just like is more of the same in which there was an actual impact that you help your customers deal with as opposed to the regular transparency where you're just like, hey, near miss, interesting thing happened. You all, here's, here's more ways we're trying to like keep you safe going forward that we've learned as a result of protecting you in this instance. Yeah, I think that's great. I think it's a wonderful thing to, to, uh, to, to drive towards. So Justin, to, to wrap up our time, I always like to ask everyone, given everything you've seen and learned over the years, somebody comes in and says, I wanna be in this field, I wanna be a CISO one day. What advice do you have to that next generation of leaders? Um, I think, man, uh, I think the following um, is the, the, like if I was gonna give one single piece, it is um, stop thinking security is meaningfully different than other parts of the business. You are one more business function. You have very specific talents and skills. So does everyone else. Um, treat them like your partners. Treat security like a product that you are building for internal stakeholders and the external stakeholders. I mean, you can certainly consider your adversaries, your external stakeholders. You just specifically don't want to satisfy their goals. Um, and you will find that that gives you an ability to talk about why and what, um, distinct from how, in a way that makes the security team more approachable and easier to work with, in a way that makes the peer your peers in the organization able to understand you and your goals and then uh, more empathetic to those goals. Too many times I see security leaders get trapped in talking about all the hows. I still fail at this sometimes, by the way, like to own it for myself. Like I still definitely fall into like the, let me tell you all about like this crazy, like technical thing that's happening and what we're dealing about it and et cetera. But like, if you talk about what and why it matters first and make sure you like are clear on that story and that is in fact the place that you have a lot of opportunity for storytelling, um, then I think you will rise farther and faster and more prepared for your peers than you would if you like um, focus on the how everything happens, how everything gets solved, how an attack manifests, et cetera. Those hows are very important. I am not telling anyone that they don't matter, but the thing that I see as a security leader is that like, no one wants to have to know the how the way you do, except your teams. They want you to know the how, and they want you to help them navigate the what and the why together. Um, that like, if I, the one, that's my like core, I'm still trying to always get better at following my own advice there, by the way. So again, it's not that it's easy, but, um, that's a core of, of guidance I would give to anyone who's aspiring to the CISO seat. Uh, maybe one like parallel or uh, uh, related idea, know that you actually want it 
like test to test yourself uh, over time to make sure that it's the thing you really want. I, uh, when I first got into security leadership, I did so because I thought I would have more control over my own destiny and it is the opposite. I don't know if you would agree with that, but I would say it is definitely the opposite. Like the, the higher up you go, the farther you are from having control, real like control over your day to day and the destiny that you, you shred with an organization. And so like, uh, I think people try to get into the CISO seat for a variety of reasons. And I think that the people who stay in the CISO seat do so because, um, either they feel like they have to and they have golden handcuffs for it, or they really like the relational aspects of senior leadership, the developmental aspects of management and coaching, um, and uh, to some extent, the architectural aspects of very senior technical leadership, if that is a part of the role that you have to have. Um, but I think that a lot of people think they're going to like it because that means they could just make the security program work the way it's supposed to because they know better than everyone else because they can just see the way it should work right now. And it never works the way, they, like I literally not once in my career have I been able to come in and just be like, this is what we're doing. I'm forcing all of you to change and had that go well at all. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with you on that. <laughs> um, you know, when you talk about the kind of the why, it reminds me of a, of a great, I think you can watch it as a TED talk from a while ago, but it's called Start With Why, uh, yeah. Simon Sinek, and really applicable to lots of things. But I also love how you said, think of security as a product and um, you know business teams as your partners or your customers. I think that is incredibly important because you, yeah, you can step back and say, what am I trying to accomplish? Like, what are you going to get out of this that you appreciate as a customer? And you can then mold and shift your communication and everything around that. I think that's a fabulous way of looking at things. Uh, on that start with why bit, um, I also really like Simon's book, uh, Leaders Eat Last. I think if you really want to be a very strong motivational uh, leader, whether people or technical, it is a great read. Um, and I think Simon Sinek in general is like an excellent author. I, he's one of the, probably my favorite at, at a leadership level to read. Obviously he's not a security pro, but I think the lessons are applicable irrespective of what uh, field you're applying them in. Agreed. Well, Justin, thanks so much for your time today. We'll, uh, we'll cap it there. I know you've got plenty of security work and things to get back to. But if you're not kidding. taking time out of your day. <laughs> yeah, if I can, if I can plug, you can cut it if you need to. But if I can plug, I will say um, I am hiring. I am looking for very senior product security engineers. And um, as I said, I also run our infrastructure teams and I am looking for staff and principal plus level site reliability engineers to help us make sure that our platform is um, always online, available and reliable for all of our patients. There you have it. I've worked with Justin before. He's a good guy to work with. Um, and 30 Madison uh, sounds amazing as well. Well, cool. Thanks, Thanks everybody for listening. Um, as you saw, we had a great discussion today. We have a bunch of other ones. So check out the, uh, the podcast, the webcast, catch us at the next one. Uh, until then, keep on fighting the good fight. Thanks, you all.